Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, and I'm really looking forward to this week's broadcast. Each week, we try to present you with the most diverse group of panelists and speakers that one can find anywhere. These range from theologians to portfolio managers, hedge fund managers, politicians, you name it. If they've written a book, we're going to have them on air talking about it. And by the way, we're not going to follow a scripted, organized discussion, but rather have a free-form discussion so that we can talk about the things that are top of mind, and more importantly, ask the questions that you would probably have asked yourself. Feel free to recommend the show to friends and colleagues, and with that, let's get on with this week's edition of Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's broadcast of Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Trois, broadcasting here from Singapore in what we hope will be the last couple of weeks of our lockdown, or circuit breaker, as we refer to it here in Singapore. And with us today, I am very, very honored and excited to have Sachin Shah with us today. Sachin, great to have you here this morning. Thanks, Frank, and good morning. And good morning to you. So as, as uh, I think one of the ironies here, for the sake of our listeners and, and for the sake of giving them a giggle... Uh, you and I actually have bonded uh, through COVID. We have yet to meet face-to-face, and we were introduced through mutual friends at the beginning of the crisis. And uh, just curious for you, how, how, is the, how has this been for you and your family going through COVID? You know, Frank, I, I think I'm at the point now where um, we're entering our third month of lockdown here in Singapore. And as I've been describing to people this past week, I am at the point of going slowly mad. Uh, it, it really, um, I think we've done a great job with it, uh, and my wife and younger son have just been fantastic. And I particularly give credit to my 11-year-old son, who's had to stay home from school, can't go out, can't see his friends, uh, and has really made uh, the best of it of all of us. Uh, he's much more adult than me, uh, but I, I'm at my uh, I'm at my tipping point. I, I need to get out. <laughs> I need to be at a bar. I need to see people, uh, and I, I need to be able to have a bit more freedom here. <laughs> no, truly, told. I, I, I've told. I, I completely agree, and it, it certainly gives one an appreciation for uh, the the challenge of solitary confinement. If you were in prison, it's it's been a surreal experience to go through this. It's interesting you say that. Um, uh, the other day, and just my, last night, my wife and I went out to uh, restock our liquor cabinet, um, and I just made this offhanded commentary. I said, you know, now we know what it feels like when people eventually go to Mars. <laughs> she looked at me like I was a bit weird. And I just said, well, let's do reality of it. It's like a six month trip and you're in the same spaceship confined room with about five or six of your fellow astronauts. Yeah. yeah off yeah. you go. Uh, that's yeah. What it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. And truth be told to that point, it's funny you bring that up relative to the space shuttle, because I mean, to a certain extent, there's also the, the muscle atrophy that's been occurring over the break as well. Yes. Yes. Without a doubt. Though I've, uh, I've, I think I've managed, or at least I feel like I am, managed my workout schedule much better than I would if I was traveling all over the region. 
uh, here. Uh, but it's been very good for alcohol sales. <laughs> for sure. And, and, and it's led to some interesting uh, behavioral consequences in terms of consumption. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sajid, on that note, you know, one of the things that, that uh, uh, and again, I, I could talk about you forever. You, you've had an incredible career in insurance. It was one of the things when we first met that uh, uh, was so interesting and so exciting. And you've had an incredible remit here, here in Asia. And for the sake of our listeners, I mean, what, what, and, and I do want to spend some time because I think COVID has highlighted some of the changes, but take us through at, at a high level, your, your journey here in Asia what, and what that's been in terms of when, what did the insurance industry look like when you first came? What does it look like now? And then maybe we can use that as a, as an excuse to talk more about what insurance would look like in a post COVID world. Well, there's a lot to that. Uh, let me see. Um, I think about where to start on that. Look, I think from a personal journey perspective, um, uh, for me, it's been a bit of coming back home. I was born in India and emigrated to the U.S. Uh, when I was young. Uh, and as you know, I've become about as American as you can be without mm -hmm. having been born in America in so many ways. Um, but it, it was just real exciting to come back to a region that in many ways is home, have lots of family in this uh, in this region. Uh, and and to be part of the vibrancy that's here. And I think for anybody who spent any time out here, you the vibrancy is palpable. You can feel it um, wherever you go. And the progress is very visible wherever you go, whatever destination. If you go a few weeks later, there's some new building up, some new road in place. Um, so there's a lot of excitement in the region uh, here and clearly a place where insurance has a very, very important role to play uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, my, my journey started here in the early 2000s uh, when MetLife, uh, a company I had previously worked for, was keen to uh, grow its presence internationally. Uh, and we began to look for ways to do that uh, in, in Asia uh, and more broadly globally, but Asia was uh, high on our priority list. Uh, and I, I spent quite a bit of time uh, going back and forth between South Korea, China, Hong Kong, India, uh, doing a variety of things uh, for MetLife at that time. And then it took a real um, big step uh, in terms of committing to Asia when um, uh, MetLife completed an acquisition uh, of a company called Alico, and uh, Japan became uh, MetLife's largest business outside the U.S., uh, and I was asked uh, to go to Japan as the chief operating officer. Uh, and it, 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 I have to tell you, Japan was never on uh, my list of places to go. And in fact, mm. in fact, my wife and I had put a list together of places we'd like to live um, uh, as part of uh, perhaps an expat assignment. And Tokyo was no, nowhere on that list. Uh, oh, and if it wasn't for a great friend and mentor uh, at MetLife, who in essence said, throw away that list, you're going to go to Tokyo. Uh, we would have never uh, had it on our list and never had the benefit of that experience, which, by the way, was just exceptional. Uh, we spent eight years uh, in Tokyo. I, I eventually uh, ran, uh, became CEO of MetLife's business there, uh, a $14 billion life insurance company. And it was really one of the capstone experiences for me of my career, uh, my 20 year career at MetLife. Um, I can't speak enough about um, not only what I did professionally, uh, but the, uh, the, the experiences we had both personally and as a family there. 
uh, in Japan. And Japan is uh, has a, a very uh, big place uh, in our heart uh, as a family. Uh, and in fact, <laughs> we built a home in, in Niseko, uh, famous uh, for its skiing. We just love it, and, and it gives us a reason to go back. Hmm. Um, in that capacity, I also began to support MetLife's broader efforts in the in the region, um, and in particular, um, I one of the things I was asked to do was spend time in developing um, high potential talent to become uh, general managers or CEOs uh, for our businesses down the road, uh, and that really um, was an amazing experience because it it just propelled me into uh, getting to know the the talent, the people across Asia. And we ran these, uh, uh, we call them GM development centers in Tokyo. Uh, and we'd bring in our high potential recruits from all over the region and put them through four days of role plays and observations and cameras and then give them feedback in a very professional uh, setting. Uh, and it was really done in a way to create a safe environment where they get to experience the kinds of situations through role plays um, that general managers would be expected to handle. Uh, but it was fascinating because you got very quickly to access people from all over the region. And one of the things you very quickly realize is that um, the Western world thinks of Asia as Asia. But anybody who spent any time here knows that Asia is maybe Asia by name, but it's a vastly diverse place. Mm-hmm. Um, there's mm-hmm. tremendous history here. A lot of that history is um, very much at the forefront of people's dealings on a daily basis. Uh, and, uh, and, and there's just tremendous variety, uh, not only in language, but also in tradition, uh, here. And so it's a fantastic opportunity. Uh, and then most recently I, uh, we came to Singapore where I took on a more formally took on a broader regional role for AIG. Uh, and that, uh, was also exceptional. I got to spend a bit more time in Southeast Asia, uh, and the Pacific region, uh, uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, and really uh, fascinating to see how much uh, development there's been uh, in Southeast Asia uh, over the last 10, 15 years. And, and if you've spent any time between Hong Kong and Singapore over the last 10, 15 years, uh, it's, I, I just don't know how to describe it to my friends back in the U.S. as to how dramatic the change has been, whether it's in the skylines or in the absolute vibrancy uh, that's going on, or in just the the economic opportunity that exists, it's hard to describe it for people. Um, uh, I find very challenging, actually, uh, without putting my own energy and passion behind it in terms of the way I describe it. So, um, a great journey so far. Um, certainly not over yet, uh, and, and looking forward to uh, uh, having a lot more fun in Asia. That's like, you know, and such, and that with that overview, let let let's drill into that a little bit because you, on several occasions, highlighted some things that I think are very, very important for our, our American listeners in particular. And and to your point, one is it's almost impossible to describe certain things here because it's it's almost like a mathematical term. You know, it's a discontinuous function. I find the Americans sometimes just simply can't comprehend uh, what's there. And and one example that you and I have talked about. Is that you know I I found when I first came here and as I got to learn and become more uh, acquainted with the super apps and the platforms that it was it was almost a, a Shakespearean tragedy to see the American firms when they would come over and they'd be pounding their chests and talking about let's say client acquisition costs 
And you would have these platforms who would just sit there and roll their eyes and say, hey, that's wonderful, but we don't have any client acquisition costs. We, we have hundreds of millions of users. That's not even part of our DNA. We're, we're, we've done that already. You know, we're, we're, we're on to the next puzzle. And it seems that the, the numbers are staggering. The use of technology has leapfrogged. And, you know, how, how now, you know, what, and let's, let's tilt this slightly to, to, to our American audience a little bit. You know, have the Americans missed this? Do they, do they really understand the significance of what's happening? And, and, and especially now in a post-COVID world, you know, we, we could, you and I could spend hours talking about how the insurance model has, has, has to change as a function of this. And whereas digital might have been a nice to have a year ago, where we're now at a minimum, even in terms of sales and distribution, it's an absolute requirement. But do the Americans get it and can they get it? It's an interesting question, um, having worked for two very large American life insurers. Um, and I, I definitely think there, there's been a transition, uh, uh, hard to pinpoint when uh, I think the GFC uh, and some of the regulatory fallout that followed that, uh, to me at least, having been on the inside, um, uh, were tipping points. American companies did get it. Uh, and, and, and in many ways were early movers to, to Asia and, and quite successful. And I'm specifically, maybe, uh, I'll frame my comments around insurance and, and financial services more broadly, uh, uh, here, uh, and a combination of what happened post GFC in terms of the regulatory environment, uh, and the SIFI regulation, uh, and a combination of, you know, what's, I guess we're all experiencing now in terms of just, um, the, the divisions that exist in America and, and, and how um, the politics have aligned around those divisions has really, I think, caused um, uh, American companies to lose, um, uh, an, uh, lose their objective view of what is Asia and, and how you can be successful here. So it, I definitely think we, we've passed the tipping point for sure. And unfortunately, you know, and I think this, it doesn't mean it's it's game over, but I do think um, uh, there, there's it's going to take much more to come back now. Is that during that same time period where American companies, um, I'll call it, have been disengaging uh, from Asia, you've had the rise of Asian corporations and Asian governments and countries and institutions as well, uh, and so the competitive field has gotten a lot more competitive uh, during this time period as well, and so. For American companies to come back, uh, particularly in the financial services arena here, it's a bigger up than it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, for sure. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but I, I do think it, it really is a different playing field from where it might have been or what common perception in the U.S. is about Asia, because it's painted broadly as some developing world or emerging market that really needs um, uh, 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 American benevolence. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that mm -hmm. is not the case. In fact, there's probably very mature, sophisticated uh, institutions operating out here and, and may have things to share the other way uh, versus um, uh, what's been perceived as one way in the past. There was an interview last year at the Singapore FinTech Festival that I found very, very interesting. And I'm purposely going to keep the, the, the folks anonymous, you definitely know who they are and, and our audience can figure out who they are, but for the sake of protecting their identities, there was an interesting exchange on a insurance panel where 
uh, two CEOs were there. One was the CEO of a very well-known Chinese company that was enormous. The other was the CEO uh, out here in Asia for a British insurer. And what was interesting was they were both talking about the same, you know, they were in complete alignment strategically in terms of where the business had to go relative to the future. And it, and it was interesting on stage in front of the audience where the, you know, the traditional insurer, the CEO basically said in, in no, no, uh, with no ambiguity that in effect, the, the tragedy was he recognized he had the right strategy, but the legacy systems and legacy processes were just un, it just could not be changed. No matter what he was doing culturally, this, this, it didn't matter how many resources they were throwing at it, they simply couldn't get the organization to move. And he realized that, in fact, in order for sure insurance to compete and make that move, that, he, that in effect, you needed to start clean. You, you, it's almost like you needed to start a completely new company. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Because that, that was the one moment when the audience paused and they said, wow, here, here he was. He was at the top of the food chain. He had everything in front of him to do this, but it was actually a function of all that legacy infrastructure. He couldn't change it and, and, and he couldn't move it. And he acquiesced to it. He said, it's just we're, we're just not going to be able to execute on this, given given our legacy systems. Look, I, I, I am very familiar with uh, the, the event you're referring to and, and the particular conversation. And I think this is, um, he, he, his comments would broadly speak for just about any um, Western uh, insurer uh, that's operating here in Asia. And I'd say probably even in their home markets, this is a very, very common challenge um, uh, for insurance companies. But to step back, and I think this gets to the point um, that you were making uh, uh, earlier, uh, it, you know, it, I think one of the challenges that uh, Western companies struggle with out here is to uh, assume that things will progress the way they did in, in your home market. So in this case, the U.S. here. Uh, and, and I think in the U.S., we've forgotten that 100 years ago, the insurance market in America looked very much like or probably did look very much like what it looks like out here. But somehow we don't have the patience to let these markets go through that evolution. And they'll go through that evolution much more rapidly uh, here. And so the concept of legacy systems or processes or starting from scratch or doing things that were not quite as baked uh, here, there, there's a lot less tolerance for that because of where the American markets matured to. Yet bringing that level uh, of expectation into a developing uh, market or a market that's already advanced past some of these things because technology is at a very different point today at the consumer level than it was 50 years ago in the U.S. Here, so there, there's there is this concept. You know, um, I use this quote often from John Maynard Keynes: "The greatest difficulty in the world is not for people to accept new ideas, but to make them forget about their old ideas." Mm, I like that, and, and I and it really to me is exactly what what is the challenge for a lot of Western companies and certainly insurance companies operating here is that there is this legacy and there is this openness to wanting to uh, accept new ideas, but there's not this willingness to let it go. And I think that really was where the comment um, that you referenced that was made is going, which is we've just got to start from scratch mm -hmm. because we're open to the new ideas, but we keep talking about what's in the way and, and we just need to forget about it now. And, and to your point, I think COVID has really created that tipping point because all of the excuses, challenges that were in the way for companies to virtualize their operations, 
to be much more digital, to create more remote working, if not 100% remote working, it went away because it was a absolute hygiene factor mm. now the last three months. And so I think there has been now a real tipping point and companies can now step back and begin to say, wow, you know what? We can overcome this legacy. We can overcome some of these issues uh, and, and we can stop using paper, which insurance companies are notorious for still using uh, in such a big way uh, here. And so COVID, I think, has really changed the game and created a tipping point around dealing with legacy. And, and, and to use that quote from John Maynard Keynes, to begin to forget about our old ideas. If, if we were to bifurcate the two, and let's assume we'll table this for one second, but on the one hand, you have uh, the, the Western firm new to the region coming in, and then you have the legacy firms that are already here. If, if, if we focus on the latter for a second, because what you're saying now about COVID, it, I think is exceptionally important. Let's use that CEO as a straw man again for, for, for this argument, where before, just simply a year ago in a pre-COVID world, he, he didn't have the systemic catalyst, <clears throat> excuse me, the systemic catalyst to, to, to move forward. Generalize that for a second. What, what would you now say to all of those traditional Western firms? Like this is the, these are the two to three things you need to be focused on right now in a post-COVID world immediately. This is, you know, what, what would that, what would those two to three things look like? For, and these, this is for the firms that are here. So if we were talking to that CEO who capitulated and to say, no, you, you, this is what you need to do. These are the, two, what would those two to three things be? You know, from my perspective, um, I, I think the first is uh, slam, you know, slam the accelerator on digitalization and virtualization of your business model. Um, a lot of companies were doing that. And the way I describe this is, you know, pre-COVID, the level of digitalization or technology investment companies made, it was an option. Some did a lot of it. Some did a little bit. Some said, we're going to wait till it's, you know, at a much more uh, uh, scaled point. Now, it's a minimum requirement. It's a hygiene factor. So that'd be the number one thing is, is get behind it. The second, which is, is also, I think, critical um, in this environment because, and it really plays into um, uh, more the macroeconomic situation around interest rates, is operating expenses and operating expense transparency and capital allocation are going to become even more important. Not that they weren't, but even more important, and the pressure on expenses and unit costs is going to be very, very high because you also have to invest in digitalization at the same time. And then the third thing would be around uh, really using this as a way to rethink your workforce and, and what, what you're doing, not only about whether they work from home or whether they work in the office, but the skill set of your workforce, the kind of work that ultimately you want them to aim at, uh, here and getting much more of the workforce uh, aimed towards customer uh, uh, um, uh, facing or customer transactions. There's a real opportunity to do this because the work's getting virtualized. A lot of the manufacturing line stuff should theoretically be going away or getting virtualized or digitalized. And that should create opportunity to redirect people off the manufacturing line into customer facing type opportunities, which should um, drive growth, if not customer retention. On your point on digitalization, let's pick on that for a second. There was a one firm here 
who, uh, again, an individual you and I both know, but we'll keep him nameless. And he's the head of distribution and for a long time had been trying to, uh, he had a big, re- he has a big remit, excuse me, in terms of, of using digitalization for distribution. But, but again, like the other individual we mentioned, couldn't move the needle and had a laundry list of items. I'll, I'll never forget his quote to me one time was he said, believe it or not, we're still trying to explain what DocuSign is in the organization. So your point on paper is, is, is well noted. And fast forward now, where so much of their sales were, were, were due to face-to-face interactions uh, with their sales force, where now it's, you know, now the CEO is screaming, we need to digitize, but he hasn't provided any points to that. Just it's a big macro, we need to digitize. What, what would you drill down into that? What, what, what do you think these organizations now need to do relative to digitalization? And again, what would be the two to three things you would say to them? You, you need to focus on this if, if you're coming out of the gates. Yeah, I think, look, it's sort of obvious, uh, I suppose, for the uh, parts of the audience that are at least uh, versed in insurance. If, if you think about uh, the input and output side of insurance, right, the input side is is getting a customer uh, and collecting premium. And the output side is ultimately paying a claim if, if that customer happens to have uh, an event, uh, uh, a covered event. Uh, so on the input side, if you think about what's happened in the last three months, how do you provide your sales force with tools and technology that allows them to operate in a virtualized environment? Uh, and for most companies, they were caught unprepared for this, and the sales folks themselves had to do their own creative solutioning. Now, there's plenty of solutions out there, whether it's FaceTime or WhatsApp video or Zoom or whatever uh, here. But integrating that in and redefining your customer relationship management process uh, and embedding these tools into how you train your agents and expect your agents to operate and letting that information then flow into your company, that, that's critical now. Uh, and and no, none of us know when COVID goes away and none of us know when the next COVID comes I think we've now all painfully experienced what can happen uh, when you're unprepared for this. And so this aspect of the front end of the insurance becoming virtualized and having the optionality for the customer to hop in and out of the virtual world versus the in-person world is, is, is a hygiene factor now. On the back end, same thing. Um, claims are largely paper processed today across the industry. Uh, uh, there. And there's been lots of efforts and, and some notable efforts made by various companies to go to digital claims. Uh, and, and there's, you know, uh, I'll say good progress there. But as a whole, the industry still operates largely on paper, often requiring a visit by a human being to the site of the event or accident to validate that it did indeed happen before coverage is, is triggered and claims are paid. That whole model is has been suffering the last three months. Uh, now, in some cases, there hasn't been that many claims over the last three months. In other cases, there's going to be a lot of claims that are built up uh, here. And so the claims process and how insurance companies pay has to be completely rethought. Some of that is not simply about removing paper. It may also come down to rethinking the product. Uh, insurance product can be very complex uh, here. And in a world where you have to v- virtually pay something. It's not simply about removing the paper. It may come down to, as I said, um, how do we simplify the design of the product so that we can automate uh, what we do uh, end to end. There's a lot of thinking to do here. There's some obvious stuff and a lot of low-hanging stuff as well. 
Uh, but the, the big change is going to come by stepping back and really rethinking through uh, uh, how we think about product, how we think about customer acquisition, and how we ultimately think about the, the operational side of the business and creating a lot more resiliency uh, or using resiliency to really drive how we design the whole operating model of the company. Let's, let's focus on, on product because you, you're alluding to something that, that, that's important. And obviously, the more data points you have on the counterpart, the easier it is to, to wrap your arms around what you're actually underwriting. And again, drawing the contrast between the Asian firms and, and access to data that they have relative to a traditional Western firm, you know, it is... Is there a difference now in the ability to price risk given, and, and especially now in a, in a post-COVID world, and I'm going to say something grotesquely over, over simplistic, but the, the fact that now in China, the, the use of, of all of this information and the fact that you know, privacy is it's just now a word, and, and in China, you don't really have any privacy and all that information is accumulated uh, versus, the, the, let's say, in the States where because of ethics issues and morality issues that that privacy is is still there it how significant is that on the product side relative to <clears throat> excuse me how you would price this stuff and 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 again are the western firms in a position where they're they're just going to cede leadership uh to asia simply because asia is willing to use that data to to make an underwriting decision yeah you know it's, this is a this has been a a big uh, i think focal point for the industry over the last several years and uh, it, it's exactly what you said. I think for Western firms, there's a lot of reluctance to go here because of either the ethical or, or moral issues that using some of this data presents. And, and in more um, uh, Westernized settings, uh, you know, the concern that these things would ultimately uh, not pass various litmus tests or potentially be considered uh, uh, not legal in terms of uh, the ability to use them. And Asia, as you know, you know there, there are democracies here um, to varying degrees, uh, but there's also a, a fair amount of technocracy out here as well. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And that, I think, has greatly accelerated the use of data in a very different way, uh, in a much more efficient way uh, than otherwise uh, in a Western setting. And I, I would say that uh, my experience, at least, is the U.S. firms um, are still underwriting the way they did 25 years ago, uh, and, and the data set hasn't dramatically changed uh, here. Now, some of that is, uh, especially when you're dealing with life insurance, where um, you're making assumptions about uh, mortality uh, or morbidity that's 20, 30 years out, uh, it, there's a conservative view that says, well, you know, it's going to take some time before the data really supports making changes uh, to the underlying data model. Maybe, um, but I think there's also a, a growing body of data that points to using new data elements uh, and, and a variety of things uh, from facial recognition uh, uh, as well, which is quite common out here, as you and I both know. I mean, you mm -hmm. don't travel anywhere in this region through an airport uh, without facial recognition uh, or, mm -hmm. or, or biometric scanning being part of how you get in and out of the country uh, here. So... I definitely would say Asian firms are ahead of the curve here. Chinese probably um, well out ahead because China, as, as I think our, our um, audience understands, kind of operates in its own closed ecosystem. Uh, and, and within that closed ecosystem, there's a, a lot of uh, 
um, uniqueness um, uh, in terms of what the um, uh, citizenship is willing to trade in terms of uh, their privacy versus the efficiency that the um, the data provides them there um, here. So the, the the U.S. firms and Western firms in general, I'd say, are behind on this, uh, and there's a bit of wait and see, uh, and there's a concern of a of a, of a regulatory action that would ultimately uh, prevent this from happening. And I think that wait and see has created opportunity for Asian firms to begin to take the lead on new ways of underwriting. And to your point, it, 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 it's actually perfectly coincidental, but we, we, you and I don't need to look any further than this week, IBM making the announcement that they're not investing in facial recognition anymore until there, there's more guidance on how uh, the police uh, would use it. And, and then, you know, ironically, to your point, you go to the other extreme and here you have Ping On through their company, OneConnect, which, which sells core banking systems. And to your point, uh, a key part of that proposition technically is the ability through facial recognition to help make a determination as to whether or not you're going to make a loan, you know, and is the person lying on, on, uh, as they're applying for it. So it, it's, it's just amazing to see that the, you know, to your point, the near ubiquity of facial recognition out here. And at the same time, the state seems to be tripping over itself. And, and again, they're, they're with, with good reason. Um, but, you know, again, just ceding that leadership to, to, uh, to Asia. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think just on that point, it, it may, there's lots of things uh, that you could put in the way here in terms of why that is, uh, perhaps. And, and you know, uh, there's a lot when you go country by country in Asia, the populations are largely homogeneous whether it's Japan or South Korea or China um, or, you know, pick any of the Southeast Asian countries themselves. It's places like Hong Kong or Singapore that tend to represent much more diverse cosmopolitan um, uh, and mixed populations. Uh, but on the whole, at the, at the, at the broader country level, uh, there's much more homogeneous populations. And, and perhaps there's an argument to be made, I don't know, that says, well, in that scenario, you know, um, the concept of racial profiling is much harder uh, mm-hmm. uh, there, which is one of the biggest concerns uh, that's been raised uh, uh, with uh, facial recognition in the U.S. and hence uh, the actions that IBM took um, and some others as well that followed them uh, here. So, it, so it's interesting. And, and I, I do think uh, there's some great examples out here, though, of, of letting citizens and the consumer decide how much privacy are you willing to trade for the convenience, the ease, perhaps the lower price um, that 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 would create uh, here, and and it's an interesting debate to be had where it's not just simply about regulating this, but it's also allowing the consumer to choose um, whether they want to um, have less privacy uh, uh, and as a result get some benefit from that or not. Now there's. There's a line there to the point you made earlier about whether we cross ethical uh, or or moral uh, lines uh, on this. But in most cases, um, I think you can get a lot of benefit without having to get across those lines. And and, and it's definitely apparent, Sajin, you and I could keep going for hours. And I'm going to sneak in one question. And then for the benefit of our listeners, we're we're definitely going to have you back here. Uh, because we haven't even begun to talk about the markets, the the, the investment risks and liability matching. And, and so again, I'm going to table that for our next conversation. But for the sake of, of, of um, uh, highlighting another anomaly in the, in the, in the markets here, and, and let me be very, very local with this, because I think it's important that 
were specific. But in Singapore, as you and I both know, there's right now a very active digital bank license process that the MAS has initiated. And it has called into question, based on the applicants, uh, all of them being quote unquote neobanks. So on the one hand, large consortia applicants like Grab Singtel, and on the other end of the extreme, uh, ByteDance is, is also trying now to become a financial services company. And the idea now that these institutions, um, and, and maybe another extreme would be Razor, the gaming company, which is actually applying for a full bank license. Um, and people, again, back in the States, looking at that saying, okay, that's interesting because they, they otherwise, you know, this, this to them, you know, on the grab side could be like Uber and, and uh, AT&T combining to, to, to become a bank. But where, where does this leave the role of an insurance company? And, and you know, are, are we now looking at, at something where, where things are now starting to bundle again, but they're bundling under different verticals? Meaning, are we now in a world, and I, and I want to qualify this by saying in Asia, are we now in a world where calling a company a bank or an insurance company is disappearing and in effect, we have these large platforms where with, with enormous number of users, where now it's a function of them just providing all of these ancillary services. So, that, so the question is, I don't think insurance is going away, but are we, are we now, is the next iteration of this, the disappearance of insurance companies in kind of the same vein that folks say that we won't even be talking about banks in five or 10 years? You know, this is, a, I'm sure, a million dollar question uh, uh, and, and a question that is is talked about often in a lot of boardrooms as well. Uh, I do think, and, and it, 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 to your point of bundling and unbundling, from an insurance company perspective, I think there's a, a huge unbundling or modularization of, uh, of the product offering that needs to happen because of exactly what you're saying. The, uh, the distribution points are changing uh, from traditional distribution systems, typically agents, um, to a lot more of these digital type settings uh, and settings in which the opportunity to provide the consumer with insurance is definitely there, but it's a very different type of offer. And it's also an offer that's very um, time bound you, because you're in the middle of some other transaction and you have an opportunity to insure a particular event uh, here. It's a very different game. Uh, and historically, uh, insurance companies have not played there or have not played it well. Uh, and, and this is really, to me, one of the big moves happening in Asia uh, with, the, with some of the commentary that you made about what's happening out here. And, and, and the ecosystem that insurance companies play into uh, and sell into is, is really changing. Uh, and, and as I said earlier, I think it really is going to force insurance companies to rethink what their product offering is. And, and perhaps for another session, but I, I'd say, interestingly, in Asia, uh, and this is true to life insurance, there really isn't life insurance in Asia. It's a savings mm -hmm. market. And in many ways, there's a huge protection gap as a result of that. And that's something we could probably talk about separately here. Um, but a lot of what's sold today is uh, some sort of investment vehicle wrapped in insurance, and the insurance component is actually pretty small uh, here. And so insurance companies have often more acted uh, in the investment management space than they have in the protection space, and it's left a huge protection gap. 
And that's what you're beginning to see some of these sort of new economy or technology-based um, uh, companies um, uh, and ride-hailing apps and food delivery services and so on. Um, they're filling that gap because they're reaching a consumer who is unprotected and they're taking particular events and creating an opportunity for an insurance company to, to protect that or provide coverage for that, uh, for that consumer on that event here. Very, very interesting Definitely uh, not something that, in my mind, is going away. But it also begins to raise that broader question that I said, that the insurance industry itself in Asia, a lot of success, a lot of growth, a lot of the life insurance that's sold is really savings products wrapped with some insurance. Uh, and as a result, um, there's a huge protection gap and therefore opportunity uh, being set up. Well, I think with that, my friend, we have definitely set the agenda for our next conversation. So I thank you for that. And, and uh, this has been an unbelievable conversation. I, I think we, we've, uh, we've definitely set the table for a much larger conversation to follow up. And I think for the benefit of our listeners, I think it would be worthwhile at a minimum circling back after the uh, Digibank licenses have been awarded, because then that would put everyone in a position to specifically look at, at, uh, at each counterpart. But uh, Sachin, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity, Frank. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you again. And for our listeners, thank you again for tuning into this week's episode of Unhedged. Again, please be safe and healthy, and we'll look forward to talking with you soon in the coming week. Take care.